0: morning everybody. I'm not going to touch that. Thanks Stacey. <laughs> oh, thanks Don. Alrighty. Uh, this morning's reading is from 1 John chapter 5. Morning to the Dingwall clan. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world and even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water alone, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And the three are in agreement. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God, which he has given about his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar. Because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence that we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that that we have what we have asked of him. If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I am not saying that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and the eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Thank you.
1: Morning again, everyone. Uh, Our six to eight people are heading out for their uh, time of Bible study. For the rest of us, please do keep your Bibles open where they are in uh, 1 John chapter 5. And I will lead us briefly in prayer and we'll get stuck into this wonderful part of God's word together. Let's pray. We thank and praise you, Heavenly Father, that you speak to us in your word, the Bible, uh, we pray that you will help us to set aside hindrance and distraction now, so we would listen with attention and with reverence, that we might become more like our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Uh, brothers and sisters, syncretism is a word that I think every Christian ought to know. For us, syncretism means taking God's true revelation and combining it with other religious or worldly ways of thinking and living. And for Christians, as I'm sure you could guess, syncretism is and has always been a big problem. A classic example of syncretism in the history of the church is that uh, when Christianity started to spread in earnest across Europe, both East and West, in the sixth century and beyond, Christian missionaries would often come into contact with pagan villagers who believed in, for example, magic wells, wells that had water that supposedly had magical healing properties. Now, rather than denouncing the pagan superstition, often Christian missionaries, in order to entice converts or to seem more appealing, would simply rebrand such things using biblical terminology such that by the time of the Reformation in the 16th century, the medieval church had a whole bunch of rites and rituals that use, in this example, holy water, even though no such thing exists in the Bible. The Apostle John, whose letter we've been studying for a number of weeks now, and which we're going to conclude today in this final chapter, does not use the word syncretism, but when he uses the term idols... In that very last line, which on first reading often sounds like this haphazard, just chuck it in there at the end kind of vibe, right? When he uses that word, this is the kind of thing that in the context of the rest of his letter, he is warning the church against. And what John has been writing in this letter is just as relevant to our church today as it was in his church in the first century we can so easily and often unwittingly distort the truth and therefore compromise the wonderful freedom and joy that we have in Christ by combining God's revelation with worldly philosophy or by combining Christian living with worldly living. So this morning, our loving Heavenly Father, through the inspired writing of 1 John chapter 5, will indeed equip us to keep ourselves from such idolatry. And he'll do it by differentiating God's genuine revelation from versions that distort it by combining it with worldly philosophy. So I hope you're ready to get stuck into it with me. If you're a note taker, you've got it on your handout, there's an outline. We're at point one, love and obedience. The first and easy point to grasp is that genuine love of God always, always goes hand in hand with obedience. So John begins, verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands now, I take it that in verse 1 there, to love the child is, is a type to love the children of God because of what follows. It could be Jesus, but either way, it doesn't make a difference because of what we get commanded in verse 2. Now, you see here that we believe that Jesus is the Christ. Otherwise, in other words, that we are Christian means we've been given new birth by God. Uh, when a baby is born, everyone in the room is doing hard work, especially the mum. The only person that's actually not doing any work or exerting any effort is the baby. And so it is with us. Our salvation, the fact that we are saved and we are followers of Jesus, that is given to us completely by God. Nothing of our work or effort achieves our salvation. Our supposed goodness or righteousness or or being religious, none of that has, has anything to do with our coming to know the truth. That Jesus is the Christ it's God's exceptionally kind and gracious work in giving us the forgiveness of sins and adoption into his family that we have when we know that Jesus is the Christ and just like anyone in an ideal family at least it's natural to love your parents and your siblings the telltale sign that we believe that Jesus is the Christ and have been given this new birth is that we'll both love God and neighbour. And to love God doesn't just mean feeling positive toward him, but living in obedience to him. In fact, to love God is, as John writes, to keep his commands. Now, John has to make this point, because he knows full well that there will always be those, sadly, who pretend to love God, or who even fool themselves into thinking they're okay with God, without actually having the slightest inclination of wanting to obey him. You see it. I've seen it. You see when people say things like that, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. Or I'm Christian, but I don't subscribe to any formalized religion. You see, those are just virtuous sounding ways of saying I'm okay with God, but I'm not actually interested in doing anything he commands. I'll have God, but only on my terms. It's for people who, in the end, have actually utter contempt for God, but they want to pretend they don't so they feel a bit better about themselves. But for us who know and love God, we've seen that the real burden is actually living in disobedience to him. We've seen that Jesus, at the very core of his being, is truly gentle, truly humble in heart, eminently approachable and overwhelmingly kind. And so we know, continuing in verse 3, that his commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. You see, we see something far better and far more meaningful than anything this fallen world has to offer. And so we turn away from the world as we turn to Christ. Now, of course, none of that happens on account of our supposed goodness or religiosity. It's our trust in Jesus that God has given us, by which our souls now find rest in God rather than this world. So continuing verse 4, this is the victory that has overcome the world, even, or a better translation, that is, our Good works and moral uprightness and religious, no, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes, or literally the same word, has faith, that Jesus is the Son of God. Belief or faith, real belief, which is given by God and which is always coupled with obedience, is the sole means by which we're saved and therefore overcome the world. We are saved by faith alone now it may be the case that like a lot of christians myself included you get a bit worried when you read that god's commands are not burdensome and yet you know full well that there actually are often points where you struggle to obey god's commands and live life his way to that i've got to say and this is important for us all to hear that there's a big difference between something being hard or difficult or at times being hard and something being burdensome. Uh, Some of you will know that I'm into music and instruments, and one thing I like doing a lot is recording. And I look forward to recording, but sometimes in a recording session you do take after take after take after take of one tiny little bit, and then you've got to edit it, and it drives you nuts, and it's hard. And I think, why am I doing this? But I would never describe it as burdensome, it's not like this thing that I don't I, I love doing it I love doing it even though it includes periods of, of hardship and difficulty so I think it is when it comes to see I actually want to live God's way even though it is periodically hard but I don't find it burdensome because I know I want us to do recording again next week whenever I have the opportunity right so that, that kind of thing now Pretending to love God whilst not obeying his commands, that's not the only form of worldly idolatry that as Christians we could be fooled by. There's another even more sinister form of idolatry that comes about by trying to combine the truth of God's word with a very particular pagan philosophy. In academic terms, this pagan philosophy could be called platonic body-spirit dualism. But it's both way more fun and way more simple to just call it doing a Yoda. See, Yoda teaches us that the thing that matters is not this crude physical part of our being, but the unseen spiritual component of the person does anyone know the quote by the way that i'm thinking of not in the empire oh it is yes you're correct sir yeah sorry you are right this is my favorite one i should have known that put him up i'm not going to try and do the voice he is yoda luminous beings we are not this crude matter not the flesh not the body that's that's crude matter the the spiritually unseen that's doing a Yoda. That's platonic body-spiritualism. Now, if we Christianize this view, if we do a good bit of syncretism with it and try and fit it in with God's revelation, then, well, we'd rightly point out that as Christians, it's not the force, but it's God the Holy Spirit who does genuinely dwell within us, non-physical. So to follow the Spirit must be what matters, which is right and true. And so, therefore, we can do whatever we want with our bodies, because they're going to return to dust. I mean, God says they're going to return to dust. So you've got to follow the spirit. Don't worry about the body. Food for the stomach, stomach for the f- for food. God's going to destroy them both. So, you might as well get as much bodily pleasure as you can. It has nothing to do with your true spirituality. There's a good way of, of syncretizing. Even worse, you might think that God's spirit himself gives superior revelation to what Jesus gave. You see, Jesus limited himself, didn't he? By being in the physical world and having a body. His revelation was the best it could be during his time, but now, having given us access to the work of the Holy Spirit, we now have revelation far superior to that which Jesus gave in his earthly ministry. Jesus is step one, sure, but the Holy Spirit gives us a major level up as Christians. But then, of course, we remember that Jesus can't possibly be inferior to the Spirit. So you know what? It simply must be the case that in his earthly ministry, and especially in his resurrection, by which he was shown to be the Christ, Jesus must have only appeared to be truly human. In reality, of course, in order for him to be truly spiritual... Jesus could only have been raised in a non-physical way. We wouldn't want humanity sullying heaven, so he shed his humanity. He's raised only in a spiritual way. Now, clearly, friends, all of this is unbiblical. But these ways of thinking were present in John's day, and I guarantee you they are very present in our day. So how does John help us to avoid such idolatry how does he help us keep ourselves from such idolatry well verse 6 he teaches this is the one Jesus who came by water and blood Jesus Christ he did not come by water only but by water and blood now in John's writing water is often synonymous with Jesus teaching about God the Holy Spirit you might remember when Jesus, back in, in John's Gospel in chapter 4, was with the woman at the well. He spoke of water that gives life, everlasting life. And in that same Gospel, chapter 7, that living water, where told point blank, is Jesus referring to the Holy Spirit. It's an excellent metaphor for him to use because in the Old Testament we see the same metaphor of water for the Spirit. In Ezekiel 36, God spoke of sprinkling his people with clean water. In the, in the two verses that immediately follow, he says twice, that's giving the Holy Spirit. But of course, Jesus' ministry wasn't only spiritual. It wasn't only water. He came not only by water, but also by blood. And of course, blood is is a shorthand way of saying something like flesh and blood, physical, flesh, body, humanity, real. In the Levitical law, the blood represents the very real and physical life of the animal about to be sacrificed, which really has flesh because they chopped it up and burnt it. So yes, Jesus has a fully divine spiritual nature, true, but just as much and very just as importantly, he has an equally fully human, bodily, physical nature. And to put the nail in the coffin, that truth happens to be what God the Spirit himself attests to. And so verse 6, and it is the Spirit who testifies, i.e. that Jesus is bodily as well as spiritual, because the Spirit is the truth. So of course you can't separate the revelation of God's Spirit from the revelation of God's fully spiritual and yet fully human Son. Hence verse 7, for there are three that testify, the Spirit, yes, the water and the blood, and the three are in agreement. You cannot separate what God the Holy Spirit says and does from what God the Son says and does. More specifically, you cannot separate the subjective experience of God the Spirit in the life of the individual, true as it is, from the objective truth revealed in real time and place and culture in the person, the human person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Spirit himself testifies that that is the case. And in the five verses that follow this, which I'm not going to go through for the sake of time, John insists that anyone who rejects that idea actually calls God a liar. God the Spirit testifies that Jesus the Christ ministered and especially was resurrected both as fully God and as fully human. So, friends, what you do with your body matters because our forerunner Jesus was raised and given a resurrection body. And what the non-incarnate spirit reveals cannot ever possibly be at odds with what the incarnate son has revealed. In fact, the role of the spirit is to testify to the person and work of the fully human and fully divine Son of God. I'm pleased to say we're actually going to spend three weeks on the the personal work of God the Spirit later on in the year. Now, some of you will know this, because I've said it before, but it was years ago. I had this uh, not-good experience once, many, 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 many years ago in a church far, far away. I, I was a young Christian. Being raised as a Jewish person, I thought all churches were the same, so I went to this church that had very interesting ideas about the personal work of God the Spirit. And there were these three ladies that got together one morning and they came and sat around me and they said, Ben, we think it's time for you to be baptised in the Holy Spirit. I said, all right, what are you talking about? They said, well, we're going to stand around you, we're going to pray, and then God, the Spirit's going to come on you, and you're going to fall down and you're going to speak in weird languages, tongues, they called it, right something different. Now, I was intimidated by these three ladies. Being raised as a Jew, I could spout off bits of Hebrew, you see. And so I thought, well, I'll just satisfy them. (laughs) And so I partook in this ritual and I sure enough fell down and I rattled off things and they thought it was wonderful. Having come to believe the Bible a lot more fully since those days, I've realised that what they did was actually horrendous. It's actually, it fits in the category of heresy, which literally is being untrinitarian it divides the role of the spirit so much from that of the Son, because the way they explained it is you've trusted in jesus that means you'll die you'll go to heaven but it's like you've come into a room and it's all dark if you get baptized in the holy spirit then the lights will be on and you'll realize your full potential for your life as a christian there were two stages there was a Definite division between what Jesus was doing and what God the Holy Spirit was doing that is anti-Trinitarian, that is literally heretical. And that's the kind of thing that I think John has in mind to warn us against here. Dear children, keep yourself from such syncretistic pagan idolatry. Keep away from it. And that brings us to John's third and final way of making sure we keep ourselves from syncretistic idolatry put simply there's a bit of a catch-all but a telltale sign of a compromised christianity a telltale sign of the teaching that john would actually call the teaching of antichrist earlier in the letter is that those who get caught up with it will lose their confidence in approaching god that's how you know something's wrong when someone's losing their confidence in approaching god somewhere somewhere on the line Something's dodgy if you lose your confidence in approaching God. In contrast, we who know the truth and have complete confidence in approaching God. So verse 14, this is a confidence we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to his will, which we know, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. You see, if God's revelation is objective, it doesn't change on the basis of my feelings. It's out there in real-world time, place, real flesh and blood with Jesus and his ministry. If God's revelation is objective, then you can know for certain that whatever he has promised only ever always can be relied upon. For example, God has said of his children that if any of us sin. We have an advocate with a father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. We see that in the first couple of chapters of John, right? And so if, for example, I pray for my brother or my sister in Christ who, who, who has just sinned, that God will forgive them, I can know, not question, I can know that I have exactly what I've just asked for. Just as I could pray that prayer for myself. And that happens to be exactly the example of, that John himself gives look at verse 16 if you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death you should pray and God will give them life I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death there is a sin that leads to death I'm not saying you should pray about that all wrongdoing is sin and there is sin that does not lead to death we know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin the one who has been born of God keeps them safe that's Jesus and the evil one cannot harm them now I don't know this for certain, but I think that John is deliberately using a tautology that's saying the same thing in two different ways in verse 16. You see, assuming that death is being used in the biblical sense of being cut off from relationship with God, it is by definition impossible for a brother or sister to commit a sin that leads to death. By definition, our sins cannot possibly... Lead to death, for we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Or even in this very passage, verse eighteen, those who are born of God are kept safe by Jesus, who, as to his earth, earthly nature, was born of God. So here, what I think's going on in, in John's example to illustrate what John's teaching here. Uh, you probably have experienced this if you've been Christian for a while. I've had it a couple of times. I get talking with someone I haven't met before, and we chat for a while, and. Uh, after a while, they find out, well, you know, what do you do for a living? I'm a Christian, I'm a minister. And, and sometimes the first thing they do is they say, oh, I'm sorry for swearing, right? <laughs> because as, you know, the, the way they've talked, they've had all the, the colourful language, right? And it's always humorous because, frankly, I couldn't care less. You know, I can swear as much as they want, right? And I'm not going to go out and say, dear God, please forgive that person for their swearing. That's stupid. I would never think to do that. I might and hopefully would say, dear God, please bring that person into your kingdom. Please let them know the amazing grace and love of the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for them, that they might know what is beyond this world and overcome this world. That's what I'm going to pray for them. Now, let's assume that God in his kindness does indeed bring them to the point where they are born again and they know that Jesus is the Christ. And then they swear at me. Well, then, then... I would pray for them for their sin that does not lead to death. I would pray as a brother or sister, please help them to you know, stop their filthy language or whatever it is. Right? See how that works? As a follower of Jesus, your sin does not and cannot possibly lead to death. And we can be so sure, so confident in our salvation that if you ask God to forgive me my sins today, you can be 100% sure that he will because of who Jesus is and what he's done. He has promised it. He has made it possible through the body and blood of Jesus. If you compromise the importance of the body and blood of Christ, for example, by the the gospel with the paganism of Yoda, then you can't be 100% sure that your sins will be forgiven. You end up, of course, trying to earn your salvation by doing good works or being a good moral religious person. John steers us away from that error. In summary, by teaching that, as we've seen, love always is to go hand in hand with obedience, unlike the world that says it's just a feeling, no, love and obedience. by showing us that commitment to objective truth and Jesus' bodily ministry is just as important as the subjective revelation of God the Spirit. and therefore as a bit of a catch, by saying that you can know you're on the right track if you have confidence in approaching God for things that he's promised and and, and demonstrated. It's so much better to overcome the world and to keep yourself from idols when you know that this is what you have on view. Coming back to those last couple of verses, of course, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, then I do need to warn you that your sin does, in fact, lead to death. The wages for sin, we are told, is death and as you continue in your sin unlike the Christian who cannot continue in their sin, as you continue in your sin so you continue in your state of being cut off from the eternal life that is in Jesus and you continue in that state both now and sadly into eternity and so if that's you what you need to do is to be born again you need to put your trust in Jesus who is Christ the son of God by his body and blood that he willingly shed on the cross, he was taking that death, that cut-offness from God. He was taking it that you deserve and I deserve. He took it. And in his bodily, physical resurrection from the dead, he was shown by God to be the Christ, to be the one that God has literally put in charge over all people and all things, and the only one who can actually give eternal life to sinners like you and like me. Look at those last few verses so you can know what it is that Christians have and enjoy and, frankly, why it is so wonderful that Thomas's parents have baptised him into this faith. Verse 19, here they are. We know, Christians, that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We also know uh, that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Hence, dear children, keep yourself from idols. If you are not yet a follower of Jesus, why not make today the day you turn and receive the eternal life that's only found by belief in Jesus? If you know you're someone who, for example, has tried to combine the truth of the gospel with the empty philosophies of this pagan world, why not make today the day you ditch your idols and worship Jesus Christ alone? (laughs) Maybe you're someone who's embraced the teachings of Roman Catholicism and therefore you are not 100% sure that when you die, you'll be with God in heaven. You don't have assurance. Renounce such idolatry And commit to what God by his spirit has revealed in the Bible alone so that you might have assurance. Perhaps you've embraced a form of the prosperity gospel. The gospel that tries to combine the truth of God's revelation with the empty values of this perishing world that chases after health and wealth and success and victory. Repent of such idolatry and embrace the true Jesus who suffered before entering his glory. Maybe you've embraced atheistic materialism, which is basically the default for every Australian who doesn't have any or much religious affiliation. Well, if that's you, in the years to come, if God in his kindness does something in your life that pierces through the veneer of your false security and stability... If he shows up your worship of self or your worship of money or family and you realise how fleeting and unsatisfying the atheistic life really is, then remember this face and remember this place. Come back here and there'll be zero judgement and there'll be nothing but joy and I'll tell you how to find eternal life in Christ. If you're in any of these or any other situations in which you know you're not right with God, you'll have actually an opportunity soon when we fill out the connect forms with a QR code to let one of our staff know that. And you can say, I'm not sure I'm right with God, please have someone from the staff get in touch with me. But friends, for we who are in Christ, what are some of the ways or philosophies of the world that we need to keep a careful eye on lest we start slipping into syncretistic idolatry? Well, at one level, we don't actually need to think about it too much. As we get on with loving God and loving neighbour and continually growing in genuine spiritual strength by learning his word, our love for God will mean we keep rejecting the things that compromise our joy and freedom that we have in Christ. But John does want to impress upon us the need to be kept from idolatry. So, for the sake of time, I've just chosen one area that I think can and does infiltrate our individual and our church culture it's the worldly mentality of consumerism now in many spheres of our life especially in our rich western culture we're used to the idea of paying for a service and getting something good you want to go to the movies you pay frankly an exorbitant amount of money these days <laughs> popcorn costs like 20 bucks is ridiculous right And you go and you get your service. Now, if you want to show up a little bit late, you know, it's just the ads, whatever, you can show up late. If you want to have a little chat with your friend while something's there, you can do that. That's fine. You're the paying customer. But can you see how easy it is for us to just have that mentality when it comes to our gathering in Christ? We have some serious culture problems on the basis of consumerism, let me tell you, I've heard people come you know, in, in, in the past say to me things like, I'm really disappointed that the church didn't do this when they're members of the church. That, that's a consumerist mentality. Now, it's always dangerous to speak about people having a tardy attitude when it comes to showing up to church. right? We have a culture problem. We're all, there's So many of us are late to church. And the reason it's difficult is because you could have been late today and then you go, Oh no, Ben's going to say something and I'm going to feel really rotten. I'm not talking about today. Okay, And there's all legitimate reasons why people are late, right? Just ignore... I'm talking about the settled, ongoing attitude that results in you just thinking it's fine to come here 10, 15, 20 minutes late, even though the typical visitor comes here 20 minutes early, and there could be more people there to welcome them. Even though there are some people who make a tremendous effort because of a past experience that's been really difficult, it's hard for them to show up at all, and yet they do. And you're like, oh, yeah, whatever. I'll Do you not believe Jesus when he says that you're part of the body and that you're a gift to the other parts of his body? Do you let consumerism syncretize with your Christian living to the point where you just treat church with, frankly, contempt? Would you be late to work every day? Or if not, why would that be? We have a problem in this area, people. There's another one. Every now and then you find people, and there's a lot in a lot church, who just think, well, I can't sing really well, so I'm not going to sing at all. I've got news for you, if that's you. It is not about you. It is not about you. I don't care whether you think you can sing well or not or whether you've had some bad experience. It's for the sake of praising God and teaching and encouraging one another. Do you care about teaching and encouraging one another, or are you a consumer? Have you syncretized Christian faith with worldly philosophy? Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Remember that our Lord came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Every now and then, we have people that rightly, for good reason, and probably for bad, leave our our church congregation. Now, one of the most wonderful things you can do when someone leaves is is have a celebration of their time with us. Thank God for what they've done. Talk about what it is that they're going for and to and, and why they're departing. I love. It's, uh, I love when someone leaves church uh, <laughs> properly, is what I mean. But it's just as much that there are people who, even long-term menders, who don't leave. They just stop attending, and that just tells you that the entirety of their thinking about their church experience had nothing to do with being family, had nothing to do with being a servant for the sake of Jesus and recognizing His body. It was a service, and they're consumerist friends. Keep yourselves from idols. Amen.